This is a talk by Joel titled "Purpose of the Spiritual Path," recorded October third, nineteen ninety-two, in Eugene, Oregon. What is the purpose of a spiritual path? If we look at all the world's religions, they really have one purpose, and that's to put an end to suffering. This is、uh, said very explicitly in Buddhism, where the fourth noble truth is that the eightfold path is a way to end suffering, and so the whole purpose of the Buddhist path is to end suffering. But it's also true of Christianity, for instance, where salvation consists in overcoming sin, being saved from sin, and of course the wages of sin are death and suffering. It's also true of Hinduism, where the whole idea is liberation, to attain liberation from this cycle of birth and death, birth and death, which is seen as a cycle of suffering. In Taoism, it's to attain harmony with the Tao, and thus put an end to discontent and disharmony. In Islam, it's to attain to paradise, where of course there's no suffering. So, in all the traditions all over the world, people go on a spiritual path to find some end to their suffering. Now, in every tradition, if we look at it, we find that there are two aspects, two poles of it. We could call it the the outer aspect, the exoteric aspect, and then the inner aspect, the esoteric aspect. And the outer aspect, the exoteric aspect, is what most people are familiar with when they think of a religion. It's going to church, it's saying prayers,、uh, it's、uh, praying to the Buddha. Even、uh, in every religion, there are these rites and rituals and so forth. And the idea is usually, the or the expectation is not to put an end to suffering in this lifetime, but to Put an end to suffering sometime in the future. After you die, you're going to go to heaven, or paradise, or in、uh, India and、uh, in the Far East. It's usually thought of after you die by leading a good life, a spiritual, religious life. This time around, you're going to be born into a better life,、uh, better spiritually, and eventually you're going to escape this cycle of suffering. And it may take. Thousands of rebirths, but eventually you'll make it. But in all these traditions, there's also、uh, there are people, mystics, we call them, who claim that you can actually put an end to suffering in this lifetime. Not only in this li- lifetime, but really in this very moment. And what I want to concentrate on here this morning, talking about, is. The mystical aspects of religions and traditions. Now, putting an end to suffering—what does that mean? That sounds like such a wild idea.、Uh, suffering seems so much a part of human life, and not just the big sufferings—not just losing a loved one, or being in dire poverty, or having disease, or sickness, or being in physical pain. Because that's suffering, of course. But what we're really talking about is the day-to-day suffering, 
And in English, we don't really have a very good word for it. Suffering's almost too strong. A better word would be aggravation, maybe. Uh, discontent, disappointment. And if you examine your life, uh, watch your life day to day, uh, you'll see that most of your day is spent in this with a little bit of discontent. Uh, always expecting something, wanting something a little better. Uh, always a little disappointed, a little anxious, uh, a little fearful, uh, a little uh, guilty. Uh, all these things is what, uh, are what we mean by suffering, this term suffering. So again, this sounds really outrageous that you could actually put an end to all that. Uh, is that really possible? Uh, is this claim that mystics make that, that actually uh, there's no more suffering uh, or there's a way to put an end to this suffering? Is that really realistic or are they sort of exaggerating? Maybe they're saying, well, uh, a spiritual path will make your life a little bit better. But no, the claim is actually that it puts an end to suffering. Now, most people uh, think of suffering as an emotion. And so one of the great uh, errors is to think that uh, this attainment of an end of suffering has to do with the ending of emotions. And this really isn't true. And this is a very difficult thing to explain. But we might get some idea of it this way. We might ask ourselves, why does an emotion, the same emotion in one situation, cause suffering, and in another situation, uh, is something that is uh, uh, joyful, is something that we cherish and relish? Now, let me give you an example. For instance, if you're walking down a dark alley, and uh, a shady character with a limp and something glinting in his hand starts following you down that dark alley, you're going to experience fear. Your hair might stand on end, uh, your muscles will start to tremble, uh, and you'll experience this as suffering, pretty extreme suffering, probably. Now, if you go to see an Alfred Hitchcock movie, you're paying, whatever the price is these days, $5, to buy a ticket, to go into that theater, and to experience the same emotion. And you sit there, and in, on the screen, there's the hero or heroine walking down the street, and some shady character comes up behind her with something glinting in his hand, and he limps after her, and she starts to run, and he starts to run. And you experience that same emotion, but this is what you've paid your money to experience. You relish it in the theater. So this is what I mean, that uh, we're not talking about putting an end to emotions. We're talking about experiencing emotions, and indeed all of life, from a different perspective. What makes the difference when you're in a dark alley and someone's following you, or when you're in a movie theater, is the context, the perspective. It has something to do with what you know about the reality of the situation. So on the, in the dark alley, you think, oh, this is real. It's really happening to me. In a theater, you know it's not real and it's not happening to you.
Now, this speaks very directly to the uh, message of the mystics. The cause of our suffering has to do with a mistake in our experience of reality. In the way we uh, feel, think, and experience our lives. It has to do with a kind of delusion we have. And so it stems from an ignorance. We don't really know what the truth of our situation is, what the reality of our situation is. Another very common analogy we find in mystical traditions, it's as if, as if we were dreaming. That this life we have is like a dream. And in a dream, you take the dream to, to be real. So if you're being stalked in a dream, you experience terror and you experience it as suffering. Because you think you're really going to be injured, killed. You have a nightmare. And when you wake up from the nightmare, you realize, oh, it wasn't really happening. And you notice that the solution to the problem of the suffering in the dream isn't that you overcome the stalker. That might happen in a dream, but then you might dream of another stalker. The real solution is to wake up to see that, oh, it's just a dream. And if you could wake up in the midst of the dream and realize, oh, this is just a dream, the whole context would have shifted for you. You might then enjoy it the way you would a movie. You'd have the same emotions. You would be seeing the same things. You'd be feeling the same things, hearing the same things. What has changed here? So a spiritual path is really about dispelling some sort of ignorance about the world and about ourselves. Now, earlier I talked about attaining this end of ignorance. And really that's a mistake, or it's not a very accurate way. If we want to be really precise about talking about this, it's not a question of attaining anything. It's a question of discovering something that's already true. The dream has always been a dream. And when you wake up in the dream, you just simply see that it's a dream. For you, it seems like something new, but it actually isn't something new. It's always been true that this is just a dream. So the same thing is true with a mystical path. You're really discovering a truth that's already there, that's already present. It's the truth of this very situation that you're living in right now. But then the question arises, how do we do this? If it's not a question of attaining something, what, what is it? How does the spiritual path work? Well, really what a spiritual path is about asking the question of yourself 
if it's true that reality isn't the way I perceive it, there's something else here. There's a truth that I'm not noticing in my experience. What prevents me from noticing that truth? In other words, what are the obstacles? And really what a spiritual path is about is discovering these obstacles and removing them. And to, again, to be very precise, it is the discovery of the obstacle that removes it. It's not something else that you do to remove it. It's simply the discovery of the obstacle to see it clearly and then, oh, it's gone as an obstacle. A story I like to tell to illustrate this uh, would be that if someone came to you and they had uh, a hot coal in their hand and they were complaining of pain in their hand and they didn't realize that the pain came from holding this hot coal, your task would be to try to make them realize that the source of their pain is the fact they're holding this hot coal. And so whatever devices you could think of to make them have this realization, that's what you'd encourage them to do. Now, finally, if they did realize that this pain uh, was caused by this hot coal they're holding in their hand, there's no problem uh, about getting rid of it. The hand just opens. You just drop it. It doesn't take any special effort or technique. It's just the realization, oh, this is causing me suffering. So you let it go. So a spiritual path is really about removing these obstacles. And in all the traditions, the mystical traditions, uh, there are metaphors to describe this. A common one, uh, for instance, in Christianity, is that uh, the spirit of God is like a fountain. And it's clogged up with dirt and stones and so forth. And so the task is simply to remove the dirt, remove the stones, and there the spirit flows. Uh, in the East, uh, it's often compared to uh, a situation of a mirror. A mirror being soiled. It's the mirror of consciousness. The mirror of the Buddha nature. And so the task of a spiritual path is simply to remove the dirt. And then the mirror shines and reflects things clearly as they are, as they truly are. This whole idea of removing obstacles is the essence of what a spiritual path is about, a mystical path. Okay, very good. Then we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the obstacle? And in all spiritual traditions, in all mystical traditions, one way or another, it's claimed that the obstacle is somehow yourself. Not that you're doing something wrong, not that you're good or bad or engaged in some particular activity as, a, as opposed to another activity. It's the, just the perception of a self, a separate, limited, finite self. It's the identification with this separate, limited, finite self. That itself is the root cause of suffering.
If nothing else entered into your life, no pain, no death, no anything else, that sense of being separate, of being alone in the world, of being cut off, that itself is suffering. This is what the story of the Garden of Eden is all about. Suffering is being expelled from the garden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked and talked with God. And to be cut off from God, to be separated from God, that fall is the source of suffering. And it's expressed in that story as the source of original sin. It's not a sin that you personally committed. It's the sin of self-existence as an individual cut off from the rest of the world. Seemingly isolated from the rest of the world. The same thing is true in uh, Buddhism, for instance. One of the basic principles of the Buddha's teaching is anatman, no self. Atman is self, an is no, no self. There really is no self. No self here. So the question arises, if there's no self, who's suffering? Who's being born? Who's dying? Who's the victim of all this? If you could really realize that there is no self in all this, then the victim would disappear. If you could realize that you aren't really that character in the dream running down the alley, if that identification could be broken, you simply see that, oh, that's not who I am. I am the dreamer of the whole dream. In a certain sense, you could say, I am everything then. I'm the, the person running down the alley. I'm the shady character chasing the person running down the alley. I'm the alley. I'm all of it. I dream this dream and I dream other dreams. And all these things happen in the dream, but they don't actually happen to the dreamer. Except as experience, the, just the experience of dreaming. This is the same thing as true in Hinduism. The core delusion, our core ignorance in Hinduism, is this sense that we, that the I, Atman, is somehow separate from Brahman which is the all, the absolute, the infinite. And so the core realization that affects this emancipation from suffering, this moksha, this liberation, is simply the realization that this Atman is this Brahman. This Atman isn't a particular physical body or an exclusive set of emotions and thoughts occurring in a world, in an alien world that the true identity of you is this whole world. So the great slogan of all of Hindu mysticism is Tatvam Asi. That I am. That Brahman is what I am. In Taoism, it said that the Tao is that from which you cannot depart. So in a certain sense, your struggles to uh, 
conform to the Tao, to uh, re- uh, maintain harmony with the Tao, or to restore harmony with the Tao, aren't real. The Tao is that from which you cannot depart in the first place. You think you've departed. You think you're outside of the Tao, or out of tune with the Tao, or in disharmony with the Tao. But truly speaking, you're not. So it's this realization again. The same thing among Christian mystics. There is nothing but God, Meister Eckhart says. Well, if there's nothing but God, who am I? Then my, my suffering uh, comes from the sense that I am not God, that I am somehow separate from God. My Eckhart gives a very good clue on a, a spiritual path. He says, many people think that they will, uh, they're traveling to God and eventually they'll see God face to face. He says, but this isn't true. God and I, we are one. You never meet yourself face to face. You meet an object out there face to face. But you cannot see yourself face to face in that sense. So, It's not a question of finding some object out there. It's a question of just realizing uh, something about all these objects right now. Kalu Rinpoche, a great Tibetan uh, mystic who died fairly recently, uh, was asked, is there an end to the spiritual path? And he said, yes. He said, the end of the spiritual path is to realize you are nothing. And when you realize you are nothing, you realize you are everything. And that's probably said as succinctly as is possible to say. So, how do we go about removing these obstacles? How do we go about uh, seeing this essential truth of the world? that I am not some separate object in the world that is sort of popped up like a little bubble and it's going to be here for a blink in eternity and disappear forever into this abyss of nothingness. Well, in a certain sense, no one can tell you how to see that. Uh, it's, it's here all the time. It's obvious. It is the true condition of everything all the time. But what you can do is look at your delusion closely. And so the first principle of a spiritual path is to pay attention. If this is true, that the self doesn't really exist, yourself, your experience of yourself this way, then you want to watch very closely those moments when that sense of self is very sharp, is very strong. You want to see what composes this self that you think you are. You want to ask yourself the question, who am I? I mean, really, who am I? And so, All the things you think you are, you want to examine each one of them 
in detail and see if it's really true that you are those things. Supposing you're identified strongly with a career, let's say. You're a lawyer. Are you really a lawyer? Or is this a social role that you play? You can find this out by examining your your attitudes, your life, how you think about yourself, your images of yourself outside of the law office. Do you act like a lawyer with your family? Are you stuck in that role? If you are, if you find yourself treating your family as though you were in a law court, that's the time to realize, oh, but wait a minute, I'm not really a lawyer. This is a role that I play at a certain times of the day. And, but here you see that you are attached to the role. Does the attachment cause the suffering? These are the kinds of questions you begin to ask yourself on a spiritual path. You begin to examine your life, to pay attention, specifically to make an inquiry. This isn't just a philosophical inquiry. This is really a moment-to-moment inquiry about what's going on. It requires your giving up a lot of preconceptions. Much of what you think you are is something you've inherited from your culture, your family, your friends, your peers. Don't just accept it. Doubt everything. Doubt your most fundamental assumptions. And you look for yourself and see if they're true. Now, this sort of inquiry, this paying attention to your life, requires a commitment. You can't just do it once in a while. Oh, it's a nice Sunday afternoon. I think I'll sit here for an hour and examine my life. You have, depending on your age, years of a habitual way of experiencing the world, of habitual attachments, of habitual perceptions. And it takes a good deal of work to really see through them. So the second principle of a spiritual path is a commitment to this. A commitment to uh, examining your life moment to moment, day to day. A commitment to the truth, which you don't know yet, but to finding the truth and not being satisfied with anything that is less than the truth. Less than the truth that as you know it, with certainty, absolutely. Your doubt is your greatest ally. Anything you doubt, you have you should be doubting. There's a reason you're doubting. It isn't the absolute truth. You, in a sense, follow your doubt. And you keep doubting. And you have the courage to doubt. And you have the commitment to do that. And then you have to have detachment. You have to practice detachment. Because part of this whole syndrome of self, of the delusion is based on desire, personal, selfish desire, and it's opposite fear. If you are some little self cut off from the world, 
If you feel yourself and experience yourself that way, then you identify with all the desires and fears of that little self. And those desires and fears are predicated on the sense of being a self, of being separate. In truth, you know, it's funny, in, the, in desire and fear, there's a kernel of truth right there. You feel you don't have things, and so you desire them. You feel cut off from them, and that desire is at root a sense to restore this sense of completeness, perfection. But the way it works out in our lives is a desire and a latching on to things and thinking that somehow that's going to secure or protect this little self and constantly being disappointed because all things are impermanent, all things are like a dream, they have no actual substance in them. And so we latch on to things and they evaporate. And so we suffer. And so uh, you realize that in this process, you realize that this attachment is a major cause of suffering. That's like the clinging to the coal. Practicing the detachment isn't some stoical uh, uh, form that you assume towards the world, a stance that you assume towards the world. It's really seeing, oh, it's because I'm attached to this cat, for instance, that's sitting over here, which you probably can't see. It's because I'm attached to this cat that I'm going to suffer when this cat dies. Now notice, I didn't say you won't feel sad when the cat dies. If you don't feel sad when the cat dies, it means you didn't love the cat very much. But will that sadness cause you suffering? Or will you experience that sadness as part of love, of the complete sense of what love is all about? So will you experience it sweetly? It all has to do with your attachment. It has to do with your fear. If the cat dies, I could die. So practicing detachment isn't uh, a, a stoical attitude you take towards the world where you cut off your emotions about a cat. It's the willingness to let the cat go, to be detached, to let the world arise and come and go, to cease to be hankering after it, to be grasping onto it, to be trying to clutch it and control it, to relax, to start to treat it as play. The greatest Attachments we have aren't the gross attachments to cats and things like that. They're attachments we have to our own images of ourselves. You want to be uh, a strong person. You're attached to an image of yourself as being a strong person, someone who doesn't make mistakes. And so when someone criticizes you, you suffer. You're holding on to an image of yourself as someone who never makes mistakes. To see those images clearly, to release them and let them go. Then someone criticizes you, so what? Okay, I said something stupid, big deal. It's this beginning to relax. This is what detachment is really about.
to relaxing this grip on life. Let letting life just live, just be what it is, not trying to force it into preconceived molds of what it should be. And this finally leads right into this last great principle of a spiritual path, and that is this surrender. This surrendering of the whole idea that there is a separate willing being in here whose will is in conflict with everything else and who can arrange the world to suit itself. This is what selfishness is about. The core of selfishness. And this is why, for instance, in the Christian tradition, the great sin is self-will, disobedience to God's will. This isn't that you're a bad little boy or girl who's not doing the Father's will. It's the very uh, experience that there is another will other than the Father's will. To surrender that will, to surrender that sense of self completely into the world. And really what this attainment of the end of suffering is, this enlightenment as it's called, or as I call it, this gnosis, this knowing, is simply that when this whole sense of self is completely surrendered, when a spiritual path brings you to that place where there is nothing more you can do, either from a mundane point of view or even from a spiritual point of view. When you are at that place, then it just becomes obvious, the truth of the world. There was only one will all along. There was only one reality. And suffering ends. Suffering ends because you're no longer seeking anything. You're no longer trying to grasp this and hold on to that and attain this. So why would you even sit here and talk to a camera? And a lot of people ask me this question. They say, well, gee, uh, if I didn't want anything, I would have no motivation. I wouldn't do anything. Well, this is because people don't know any other way to live except out of this self-centered motivation. That's been their whole history of their life. They can't imagine any other motive for living. But maybe we can get some uh, sense of this by looking at a dancer. Or look at your own experience. Sometime when you're in your living room and it's a sunny day and you put on some music on your stereo and you're feeling happy and you start to dance. Why are you dancing? Are you dancing to gain something, to get something? Are you dancing to get approval or money? Are you even dancing to get happiness? No, you're already happy. You're dancing to express that happiness. You don't even think about it. 
You just simply, spontaneously start to dance. Well, this is what life is truly. This is what the whole world is truly. Poetically speaking, it's the Leela of God. It's the dance of Shiva. It's the creation, which is, according to the Bible, Katova. It's good. God creates the world. He makes all these distinctions and he looks at it and he says, Katova, it's good. In uh, Islam, there's a beautiful uh, answer to the question, why did God create the world? It's a poetical answer. But Allah responds uh, to Muhammad when Muhammad says, what, what should I tell people when they ask why you created the world? And Allah says, I am a treasure who longed to be known. And just as, if in a certain sense, Shiva knows himself through his dance, the dancer is the dance. The dancer unfolds all the potentialities that the dancer has in the dance. And so this happens with the world. And it happens with your life. It's happening right now with your life. The trick is to know it.